of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. We all know sleep is important and that most cops and first responders don't get enough. It's pretty much a given that you will sacrifice sleep in this line of work, whether it be shift work, overtime, or callouts. Today's guest, Dr. Stephen James, is a sleep researcher with the University of Washington whose research shows that well-rested cops make good decisions, have better job performance, and improved community relations. Dr. James is passionate about helping cops and other frontline workers sleep well, not just so that they can perform better at work, but so they can live a better life. Our conversation demonstrates the importance of working with researchers to implement evidence-based practices. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. We talk ideal shift length, his thoughts on rotating shifts, intermittent fasting, tactical napping, cops as functional athletes, and why incorporating exercise into your shift is so important and one of my favorite topics, yoga. Dr. James and his wife have created sleep hygiene training, and he discusses some of his suggestions to set you up for a successful night's sleep, regardless of what shift you work. And finally, Dr. James tells us to say yes, and that it is far better to regret something you say yes to, rather than something that you say no to. All right. Welcome to today's show. Today, um, I'm very happy to have Dr. Stephen James. Dr. Stephen James has a PhD in criminal justice with a focus in police performance. He is a researcher and is currently working at the College of Nursing at Washington State University. He's got a pretty extensive background, which includes 23 years in the British military as an Irish Ranger. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today um, to discuss the research that you do on police performance and sleep and and how that can impact um, someone on the job and just for long-term performance. So welcome to the show. Thank you. And long-term health as well. It's uh, it's all wrapped up in the same thing. So, um, so my lab uh, at Washington State University is, is part of a much bigger research center that looks at sleep and performance from mathematical modeling, through animal models. So we have fly labs, rats, mice, cats, ferret labs, humans, uh, and then humans in the field. Where my group specializes is looking at occupations such as law enforcement, military, uh, elite athletes, nurses, anyone who has an element of sleep deprivation, shift work, and the consequence of getting it wrong is high, either to the individual or those they care for or, or serve. Sure. And, and just to back up a little bit, how how did you become interested in police performance? I know you do a few other things, but mm-hmm. but when you were um, deciding what to study and h- how did that all come about? This is going to sound really strange to your listeners, but I, I didn't. My wife decided for me, wow. um, which which is pretty, pretty much the run of the mill for our marriage. Uh, I was over in Afghanistan with the army and she came to America. If you can tell from my accent, you know, I'm not not a local. Uh, she came to America to study her master's degree in criminal justice. She wanted to be a, she, her undergrad is in psychology. She wanted to go into forensic psychology. Mm-hmm. And she met a professor, Brian Vila, who arguably started the science of police fatigue. He's a retired cop, a, re- a retired police chief. He, he was the first police chief of Micronesia uh, for the U.S. Um, back in the day. And, and don't judge him for this, but he was also a Fed for a while. 
Um, <laughs> he worked at NIJ as the director of crime control as a, as a GS-15 and then came to Washington State University. He was sort of headhunted by the wider sleep and performance research group to, to kind of build out this area of police performance and fatigue, military occupational fatigue and so on. And he recognized my wife's talent very early on and said, hey, you need to stay and do your PhD. I'll pay for it. Or his lab will, you know, his, his grants will pay for it. And uh, my wife turned around and said, well, that's great, but I haven't seen my husband in almost a year. And it will be more than a year by the time I do get to see him. And uh, he, uh, he started emailing me while I was in Afghanistan and said, hey, I'm going to keep your wife. I've got a job for you. And I, I had no interest in graduate school. I had no interest in further education. Um, to go back a few years, I, I joined the army at 17. I didn't even graduate high school. Uh, so I did 10 years enlisted before I became an officer. And I, I did my undergrad uh, to become an officer, I, not because I, I liked school. So Thinking about doing a, a, a master's or a PhD was the furthest thing from my mind, but uh, Brian convinced me. Uh, I, I came across in 2008, the very end. I was uh, November 2008, just to do my master's, and then that rolled into my PhD. And, and then when Brian retired um, in 2015, I took over the lab from him. I kind of inherited it, the, the lab and, and his research agenda and so on. That's a really fascinating path because typically people, when they when they decide they're going to go to get a master's or further education, it's something that that they've planned. So I guess when you get an email from from a random stranger in another country that says, "I'm not, not letting your wife come back," that that's a mm -hmm. that's a good motivation. It, it is, and 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 the wife is Lois is the brains of the operation. We work very closely together. Uh, our our research interests intertwine. So about 70% of the work I do is with Lois and about 30% um, we, we work independently and that is good to stay married, um, sure. to not always be in each other's pockets. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's been great, you know, and, and my advice to anyone, you know, especially my, my friends, children who are uh, thinking about joining the military and whatever they normally get sent my way and like, you know, what are your records? What do you, what's your advice? And my advice is just say yes. Whenever a door opens, just say yes. You never know where it's, you know. I'd rather regret the stuff I I did than the stuff I didn't do. And uh, I certainly don't regret coming and working with Brian and, and following this path because uh, being an infantry guy, it's tough on the body. And and uh, I was my body was more ready for a transition than my heart was, but I'm, I'm, I made it now. Yeah, and you got that experience to draw upon when you're doing yes. your research. Yes, a lot of our thing comes from the Department of Defense. Uh, about eighty percent out of um, the Office of Naval Research, looking at uh, warfighter performance and understanding how stress and fatigue affects decision making for the troop. Um, and then about fifteen percent from the Department of Justice. We currently have two reasonably sized grants from DOJ through the National Institute of Justice. And one is specifically looking at how shift work and fatigue of police performance and our partners uh, in that study is Seattle PD. And uh, the other study is looking at whether or not uh, implicit bias training has an effect on behavior on, uh, for street cops. Does it, you know, putting them through bias training, does it make a difference? And, and our partners on that study is Sacramento PD. 
So we'll work with anyone, anyone who wants to understand how stress, fatigue, training impacts their performance, then then we're more than happy to to partner with them. And, and we absolutely need partner agency because we, we can't do this type of research to try and make it safer for officers on the street without agencies sort of stepping up and saying, yeah, we'll, we'll get, we'll get on board with that. Right. And, and I remember that when we spoke last time, you were telling me about um, your work with Seattle PD and are you, are you able to go into a little bit more detail about what yeah, that absolutely. looks like and, and, and what the, the implications are from that research? It's a, uh... It's an NIJ-funded study, which is what we call a randomized control trial. So individuals will opt in uh, to the study, and then they'll get randomly assigned to either a treatment or a control group. And, and the treatment in this case is fatigue training. We've developed uh, eight modules, uh, very short, between five, six minutes and 15. Like, well, there's one or two that are six, seven minutes long training videos, and with a little bit of homework after each one, kind of journaling and logging and reflecting, the longest being 15 minutes uh, once a week. And we want to see if this training intervention improves uh, sleep and, and other measures of quality of life. So prior to taking the training, officers uh, participated in a, a rather extensive sleep, health, stress, behavioral health questionnaire, um, you know, and other satisfaction with the job related questions to. And we tracked their sleep using uh, wristectigraphy. It looks a little like a Fitbit, um, but it's a research grade device that accurately tracks their sleep for two weeks prior to the intervention, prior to the training. And then they, they either randomly get assigned to no training or, or, or the training group. Uh, they go through that for eight weeks and then they wear the device again to see, did that eight week training change the quality and quantity of sleep? And again, that battery of questionnaires to say, you know, did it improve sleep, alertness, um, and in other, we're, we're right now collecting the, the post-intervention data, so I can't sort of report on that. But in similar studies that we've done, for example, with the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Ottawa Police Service, uh, we found that this type of training improves not just uh, sleep and feeling alert and performance in the job, but reduces uh, how we experience pain. It uh, reduces family dysfunction and uh, even increases satisfaction with sex life and so on. So there's a huge amount of benefit from, from sort of looking after your sleep and protecting it. It's, it's a core biological function that we really cannot do without. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And probably the number one uh, issue I think that's facing law enforcement. I mean, there's a lot of important issues, but but I think that you can agree. You know a lot more about this than I do. The number one thing that people will all probably agree on if you have a, a group of 20 or 25 cops or corrections officers in a room that nobody can get eight hours of sleep, um, whether it be uninterrupted or being able to fall asleep. It seems like that is not that's that's not the norm. Mm -hmm. And. and for me, it's a win-win if we if we really address the sleep and stress that officers or corrections officers are are under, and you know you'll hear you know we work in the area of bias too, and we work in the area of police performance and so on. But ninety nine point nine nine times you know uh, or, or percent of the time, I should say, when we have a a well rested, non stressed police officer, they do a good job. They make the right decision. They make the moral decision. 
And when we see these tragedies that unfold, um, it's, it's quite often officers have too much fatigue, too much stress, too much other going on in their life. And, and you know, they hadn't, you know, they weren't acting within the, the realms that they would normally work in. So although we do develop and, and deliver bias training, I quite honestly say that some of the best bias training we could offer is sleep and health, you know, stress management, because when we have well-rested cops, they make the good choices. And uh, so improving police community relations is also tied up in improving officers' sleep and wellness, right? Because when you have these tired, stressed cops, they're grumpy, there's friction in, you know, when they interact. So we hear these calls for defunding the police and so on. And I'm an adamant advocate against defunding the police because if we think that giving agencies less resources will result in better work, it, it, it's, you know, it, 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 that's a fantasy. Uh, we need to support our police officers. We need to make sure that they are staffed correctly. So agencies are not relying on overtime and burning the candle at both ends. And, and it, you know, it was scary working with agencies across the nation, knowing the levels of overtime agencies were running month to month before the troubles of the summer, before all of the, the unrest, and then putting officers under that amount of stress, extra work and so on. I was just waiting for the next tragedy to happen because cops are human and humans have limits. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with everything that you just said. So kind of on, on the same line with that conversation, what do you recommend? I mean, because obviously not just, um, I mean, this is a common problem throughout the country and, and probably internationally that we're facing in that we can't hire enough people and we can't retain enough people to do the job. And as much as we, we want to not make people work overtime, a lot of times we don't have a choice. So how, what do you recommend in terms of your research or policy recommendations, um, things like that? Is there anything that, that has come up in that, in that arena? I think there's two things that we need to, to really consider, um, especially if you're in a leadership position or have oversight of police budgets. And that is a risk management model. You know, what level of risk are you willing to accept? You know, we don't allow any city employee to come to work or county employee to come to work drunk, but we'll accept them coming to work with inadequate sleep. And in many cases, the effects are similar. They're still impaired. And so we really need to understand, and that's sort of where my lab fits in, we're trying to understand what those limits are. And the sort of the underpinning of what I try and do is we absolutely should hold any government employee, regardless of if they're working at the DMV or law enforcement or wherever, you know, they, they are public servants. And, and as the public, we should be able to hold them accountable. But at the same time, if we're holding someone accountable, what we're, the, that level of performance has to be achievable by a human given the stresses they're under. And, and if we're holding them to a standard that's not possible, that's not ethical. So trying to understand where the risks are, where the levels of performance are, and then each municipality needs to understand, well, do we care enough about this to invest in it, right? Because if we want to reduce um, accidents, errors, injuries 
if we want to improve community relations, we need to invest in it. And it's that's the trade-off that needs to happen is that you, you can't have good police without solid investment into public safety. At the same time, agencies, jurisdictions need to do what we would describe as true cost accounting to really understand how much fatigue is costing them right now. It's not just time and a half or double time for the overtime. It's the increased risk of accident, illness. Um, it's the damage it's doing to community relations. We know that um, successive shifts and especially night shifts that are interrupted with training and court will lead to more citizen complaints, those types of things. It will lead to more accidents and injuries, vehicle accidents and litigation. You know, And quite often these costs are from different pots of money. And not everyone has visibility. You know, there'll be the the cities will be mutually insured, so they they're paying into this insurance fund for litigation or collisions or so on. Um, city fleet maintenance is paying for um, you know the the dings and dents of uh, of minor collisions. So no one sees all the costs, uh, and that's one area that we really need to work in is understanding the economics of fatigue to make the business case that getting more boots on the ground is beneficial and it's, it's actually a cost-saving measure. That is on top of how it's going to um, keep our men and women who serve our communities healthy, not just during the job, but but into their retirement. You know, law enforcement, uh, off, law enforcement die, the, the, the number keeps changing in a scary way. When I first started doing this, John Violanti is one of the ex, you know, I don't know if you know John, he's, mm-hmm. he's a good friend and colleague at a SUNY Buffalo. He's a retired New York state officer himself. Um, and he works uh, closely with the CDC looking at mortality and morbidity of law enforcement. And 10 years ago, the number was seven years after retirement, earlier than other municipal workers. And now it's creeping up to 10 years younger than other municipal workers after retirement. Due to chronic illness, um, due to um, uh, you know suicide and 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 um, health risks associated with PTSD, you know increased drinking and so on. So, I honestly believe, you know, hand on heart, that if if the the women and men out there are giving the best years of their lives to their communities, that they should be able to retire um, in good enough physical and and mental health to to enjoy whatever comes next. Yeah, and you you touched upon about four or five different really in, important points there. So first of all, just your your angle. So I, I tried to take notes so I wouldn't forget to ask you all these things. But first of all, just coming at it from that risk management viewpoint, mm-hmm. I think that's that's very beneficial. So have you had success working with law enforcement agencies in them taking all this great advice that you're giving them based off of your research? Yes, some, some agencies... Um will double up police officers uh, on graveyard shift uh, to share the driving. For example, um, we all know distracted driving is bad, but apparently if you've got a badge, it's not so bad because I've literally been in a police vehicle when the officer was typing with both hands on the MDT um, while driving, uh, not at excessive speeds, but you know, 40 and a 30 kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so now you add <laughs> to the mix. Uh, yeah. That's all. Don't get me started. I work with the uh, National Police Foundation in trying to reduce officer-involved collisions and struck mm-hmm. by instances too. Mm-hmm. So that you know, as we know, 
motor vehicle collisions are the number one on-duty cause of death. Fatigue um, plays a significant role there and especially how it interacts with distraction. So if you could take that distraction load away from your graveyard power shift officers, that, that's one. Um, you know, there are some agencies that, that do it um, systematically like California Highway Patrol, you know, their, their, their graveyard shifts are predominantly two person vehicles. Um, well, I've had some agencies I've worked with that have either eliminated overtime for graveyard shift officers because they're the most impacted by fatigue mm -hmm. because you know, trying to trying to work at night and sleep during the day is counter to our biology. Uh, and there's, I could talk for an hour on why that is and, and so on. But so, you know, some have taken the advice that if you do need to hold graveyard shift officers over for training, bring them in early. Don't hold them over at the end of their shift. Bring them in a couple of hours early for training. Um, my wife and I are both uh, board members, um, advisory board members to the risk management company Lexipol. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Lexipol. They they, they yes. write model policies and, po policies and so on. So we've been trying to, in that regard, kind of help formulate policies and, and they have some training endeavors too. And then uh, right now we've been working for the last three years with CDC NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, to develop an online training for policers to reduce fatigue. And that, once it's validated, will be available free to, to any agency that wants to just log on. There's two modules or two tracks, one for the line officer and one for first line supervision. Because, mm -hmm. you know, kind of looking at some of the, um, so, some of the, uh, more nuanced uh, areas of fatigue around supervision. Um, uh, one agency has a unwritten policy. I would rather see it in writing if possible, but any officer can self-identify as being too fatigued to drive that night and they just get doubled up and there's no paper written. There's nothing that goes in their jacket about it. It's just a, a safety measure that, uh, you know, I'm sure that if it happens shift after shift, their supervisor will be like, Hey, you know, it's on, you know, it's on you too to come to work as, as rested as possible. But the moment it's just, okay, you, you can ride with so-and-so uh, tonight um, just to reduce that, that risk of collision. Um, I, I have been trying to work with some state police departments um, with some of their motor vehicle um, leads to develop fatigue training specifically around operating of motor vehicles and fatigue um, agencies that have long commutes and trying to restrict uh, the number of hours they can uh, drive they, they can be on duty and still drive a, a patrol vehicle um, two things there one none of them have been implemented as such and well apart from one and that one it's the bare minimum, like the absolute bare minimum of, of, of what I would call safe or acceptable when it comes to the amount of hours, you know, you can be awake for 16 and drive and have to have eight hours off between shifts. Well, if you only have eight hours off between shifts, you're probably getting a maximum of seven hours of sleep. And that's if you're lucky. So, um, you know, we would, we would say that eight hours between shifts is the absolute minimum that anyone should should be uh, able to work. Yeah, and I was actually gonna ask you that. Um, I know I've heard you say before that 
Um, if somebody is up for, I think it's 24 hours, it's the equivalent mm -hmm. of, of blowing a, a 0.10 as far as on the antoxalizer. So, and I know just speaking from personal experience, I've been up when I've gotten called into work before as a detective, 18, 19 hours in a row, mm -hmm. um, easy, uh, if not more sometimes, which, um, is never any fun, but what do you recommend? And, and that sometimes that, that can't be helped, um, obviously, in those situations. But, but in your, ideally, what would be the, the maximum amount of numbers or the shift that you would recommend for those working patrol or, or a shift in a detention facility? So the, the really unsatisfying answer that most sleep researchers will give you is that it depends, right? It depends on the risk associated with your job. And if you were working in Walmart at night, restocking the shelves, you can work 12 hour nights because I personally am okay with you mixing up the, you know, the beans with the peas. Sure. That's not going to get anyone killed unless you have a severe pea allergy. Um, <laughs> but I don't believe that working in a detention center, working the, the, the street is a 70, 80% job. And that's what happens is that, yes, you can do the job, but you're not doing it safely. You're not doing it um to the to the maximum that uh, performance that you can and that's one of the reasons we work with athletes right we don't make them better athletes we just allow them to access their own potential by taking sleep seriously but to, to talk about shift lengths it depends on on how busy your jurisdiction is uh how much driving you have to do what sort of commutes you have to and from the job as a general rule of thumb we like 10 hour shifts and the reason being uh, we know from about 110 years of industrial medicine that the risk of accident, illness, and injury increase exponentially after hour nine. So the 10th hour is still dangerous, but 11 and 12, and if you push it even further, it gets much, much worse. Um, 10 hours also gives you enough time between shifts, even if you are um, working graves and you're circadianly disrupted, as in you know, you're trying to sleep off uh, during the daytime when the body's not designed to sleep. It, that makes that a little easier. But the reason we don't say eight-hour shifts is because to do a 40-hour work week, you need to do five of them in a row. And the problem isn't just with how long you work a shift for. It's also the number of successive shifts. So the second shift is more dangerous than the first and the third. So working 10s, you can do a 4, 10, 3 off a rotation and still get a 40-hour work weekend. Um, so that's kind of uh, – I work with an agency that, that has a strange shift pattern. I've yet to find another one that does it. They work 10-hour, 40-minute shifts, and they work something like 5 on, 3 off, 5 on – no, 4 on, 3. And it's some weird – on off rotation that that adds up to being um, 160 hours over four weeks as opposed to just a 40 hour work week. Uh, but again, that those extra 40 minutes is, is pushing pushing the uh, the envelope there on 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 safety. And uh, if you're already working at 12, if you're held over for overtime, you are really in that dangerous area for, for when it comes to fatigue. So four tens, uh, and, and, and uh, for any of your readers, there's a, a white paper that's just gone out from LexiPol that kind of lays out the argument that my wife contributed a small amount to uh, of why tens are, are a good bet. Um, you know, I, I've worked the extreme. I 
when I was a young, young soldier, I did a couple of tours in Yugoslavia. And you know you're old when you worked in countries that don't exist anymore. <laughs> um, and when we first got there, for the first three months, we worked 36 on 12 off. And wow. that was a like that wasn't a sleeping thirty six shift. That was mm-hmm. you're active for those, and that that was dangerous. Um, you know, and they say that youth is wasted on the young. If I'd known back then what I knew now, I might might have pushed back uh, from that. But you know, we we all have a service mindset. Um, if you're in the military, law enforcement, corrections, you know, any type of first or emergency responder. It's very hard for us to say no. It's hard for us to say no to serving our communities. It's hard for us to say no to training because we want to get better. But uh, we need to understand that there's limits. There's limits to what we can do safely, both in the short term and how it impacts our health and wellness long term by burning the candle at both ends. So real quick, um, just kind of going back to what you were talking about on shift work, you mentioned a couple things. I'm curious what your thoughts are on rotating shifts because there's a lot I've never worked for an agency myself that has done this Mm -hmm. but you alluded to it where they do uh, maybe for I don't know a month or two months six months and then they rotate I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and then also if you wouldn't mind talking to us a little bit about uh, you mentioned Dr. John Violante Mm -hmm. and I know he does a lot of work with metabolic syndrome and the impacts of of long-term health and inflammation and leading to mm-hmm. disease um, on the type of work that we do. And I know you've done a lot of research on that as well, as far as um, how sleep and shift work impact, you know, the potential for, for long-term disease. So if you could just mm-hmm. cover those few things for us, I'd be appreciated. Um, what was the first thing you asked me to cover there? <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I, I kind of asked you two and one there. Sorry yeah. about that. The first thing is I'm just curious about what your opinion is, is on rotating shifts. So, oh, ro- rotating shifts. Rotating so, shifts, yeah. Yes. I, I, th- my first opinion is if it's a backward rotating shift, stop it right now. Like, so what I mean by a backward rotating is that you're going from a late shift to an early shift. Right? Okay. You're going backwards. Um, forward rotating shifts and rapid forward rotating shifts where you do like two days on earlies, two days on mids, two days on graves Mm -hmm. with a significant period off. There is some evidence to say that that's okay. Now that puts a lot of strain on people's domestic situations where there's no set schedule, you know, and, and especially when it doesn't fit easily into a seven day week, because if, unless your significant other is on board with it and you don't have kids or, or whatnot, where you have schools and all of these other, you know, practices and so on to try and get your, your kids to those rapid rotating shifts can be very difficult on families uh, being able to set, um, set a schedule. However, working 20 years of graveyard shift is not a good thing either. Right. So, um, so that, that, that comes with its own cost. If you are going to be on a rotating shift, it should be rotating forward. So you should go from an early shift to a mid shift to a late shift. Okay. Um, if, if there's more than two shifts, the, uh, the idea of rotating shifts, if it's not going to be a rapid rotating two or three days in one shift, uh, it needs to be three or more months. So a week on a shift, two weeks, a month on a shift, 
really messes with people's ability to adjust. It takes about three months for the body to adjust to a shift. And we don't ever fully adjust to a graveyard shift because we are nocturnal animals, no matter what we try. Um, but it's a good answer to spreading the pain. So you don't have uh, officers who are stuck on graves until they have the seniority to get off of graves, right? And that, and some agencies uh, can be decades. Uh, I know, I know one agency I've worked with where the the junior guy on days had 15 years in. Um, so for anyone to get off nights was, you know, impossible if they were not, unless someone wanted to bid for nights. Um, so, so if you're going to do a rotating schedule, three months minimum okay. on one schedule. There's no really good answer. And, you know, we can blame Edison because once Edison invented the electric light bulb, society became 24-7 and we have to police it, right? Public safety is a 24-7 gig, 365 days of the year. Uh, I would ask agencies to really consider what they're doing at those really wee hours of the morning, 2, 3, 4 a.m. Um, I kind of joke that bad guys have circadian rhythms too, you know, and if if pattern of life in your jurisdiction allows it, reduce the number of officers you're exposing to uh, to potential collisions by pulling them into you know cop shops or whatever you happen to have, um, so they're not driving around an empty city at 4 a.m. Um, for no reason. Uh, you know but, any, uh, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt no. you. Um, I'm curious because you just made me think. Do you know of any agencies right now that that have implemented something like that? Where kind of, it makes me think of what firefighters do. They're just sitting at the at the station house waiting for for, for the alarm, so that they're 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 housed somewhere until something they need to respond to something. Um, I know of a couple of agencies that have cop shops and even some that have on duty napping, which is I am a huge fan of, right? Because you hear the argument, well, we can't nap on duty. You know, the taxpayer will never satisfy it, but you just mentioned them, right? The firefighters, they're usually employed by the same city, the same county, but they get to sleep on duty. Um, it's all about protecting performance, you know, and, and, and trying to mitigate risk and of, of accident or error. And if you want good policing, they have to be well rested. So I would be in favor of for graveyard shift officers to be allowed them to pull them in off the street, staggered, obviously don't, you don't want to take everyone off the street at once, uh, between two and four and put them through, you know, a 30 minute nap rotation. So they just get that little boost to sleep. Um, I don't know of any agency that's doing it systematically. Uh, we're, we're actually talking with an agency in Arizona to maybe do a pilot test with them to actually show that it's efficacious. Um, but to, to kind of quickly go back on that point of, of rotating shifts, there was a agency in Canada, Calgary PD, and I'm not sure I need to, I need to touch base with them. I'm not sure if they've stuck with this model, but they, they implemented a really interesting model, which might be difficult in the U S because of different employment laws, but, um, everyone got paid as if they were doing, uh, four tens. But days did four four twelves, the midshift did four tens, and the graves did four eights. And they then uh, rotated every three months. So 
you you over the year you end up working or you know the same amount as if you were just on four tens, but it was reducing the risk of those in the evening. Now that kind of gets into a, a problem with with employment law in this country of getting paid for hours you haven't worked yet. Um, but we need to start sort of thinking outside the box because it's not just about um, boots on the ground. It's about how effective they are when they're there and how safe they are. Uh, in the Army, we do a great job of making sure our soldiers are well rested when they can because we know that we have to work extreme hours when we have to. And uh, my old platoon sergeant used to always say to me, boss, I'd rather be looking at them than looking for them. <laughs> um, so he would bring them in to, to sleep whenever we had the opportunity to sleep. Um, but we need to we need to kind of have that mindset that it's it's not about just being present. It's about being function safe and, and anything that we do from a policy wise or supervision wise uh, should be there to support that officer safety, whether or not it's, you know, short term, as in how they're going to not get involved in collisions or interactions with the public that that could have been avoided or long term in, in how it's affecting their health and wellness. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. We need some more creative solutions to some of these issues. And, you know, a lot of times in policing, um, we hear a lot of, well, that's just the way we've always done it. And I mm -hmm. just uh, I just don't think that we can fall back on that anymore because it, it clearly isn't working. Right. And, and our city here in Spokane, Washington, a few years ago, not sure if it's still the case again, because, you know, things change. We, we've, we've got a new chief since then. But uh, about five years ago, uh, the city basically refused to respond to property crime calls because they were understaffed, underfunded. So the chief says, you, you can either have this type of policing or this, but with the resources you've given me, you can't have both. So uh, they just, and it was funny, I, I had uh, Anderson Cooper's news crew uh, in my lab, um, you know, with all of their broadcast quality cameras doing a piece. They, they've spent the whole day filming with us. They went back to their hotel, um, took the, the memory cards out of the cameras to edit, to, to send it up to CNN. They came out in the morning and all of their broadcast equipment had been stolen from their rental cars. Oh, gosh. Uh, about $20,000 worth of camera equipment and, and, and accessories. So they, they called 911. They were told to call Crime Check and they'd be given a number for their insurance. So... They came back to my lab and uh, I called a buddy of mine who was a sergeant at the time in major crime saying, unless you want to be the news, <laughs> just send someone. <laughs> uh, and they did. And I, from, from what I understood, I've never heard any different, but, but I don't believe they ever got their equipment back. So someone is making super high quality home videos. Obviously, yes. Yeah. Um, and, never, leave, and I, never leave a Pelican case in, in the back of a car. They're just too tempting. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, you know, I know that a lot of agencies, including the ones that I work for, implement something similar. If, if there's a property crime and it's below us, depending on how much it's worth, the you know, they'll they'll do a, a phone report or, or send it, send mm -hmm. it to somebody to take something over mm -hmm. the phone and give you a case number. So mm -hmm. um, let me ask you this. When we're talking about um, these rotating shifts, something else came to mind that, that is of interest to me because I'm personally trying to, to figure something out at the agency I work at. What are your thoughts on, or do you know of any agencies who have incorporated fitness, like fitness mm -hmm. time or working out um, as part of their shift? Yep, um, a spam PD, for example, they have. But what I what I understand from talking to the rank and file 
the boots on the ground, and you may have experienced this in your career, that it really depends on how the supervisor that they work for views that. Oh, and yes. if the supervisor is a gym rat, then their troops are allowed to hit the gym on company time. If the supervisor doesn't value that, then the, the troops are discouraged from, from doing it. Um, so yeah, there are agencies that, that, that have it and, and it's, uh, it's beneficial, right? I mean, we, we are asking, uh, the men and women of law enforcement to basically be functional athletes in many cases, you know, the vest, the duty belt, um, they weigh on you and, you know, they're not as heavy as they used to be and they're more comfortable than they used to be, but that amount of weight on your body uh, for 12 hours a day or, or, or so it weighs on you. And, and if we're going to ask people to do um, a job that is physically and mentally demanding, then allowing them to be in the best shape they can be in to achieve that. And I would argue that core fitness or core strength and things like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with yoga, um, but yoga is absolutely uh, key for flexibility and making sure that you know, when you need that explosive power, you don't end up doing a hammy like all of us older people end up doing thinking we're 20 again. So, yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. I don't think I told you this about me, but I am a yoga and I know. meditation I, teacher. You, you did. That's, that's why I threw, <laughs> oh, okay, I threw, okay. your, I threw <laughs> your bone there. <laughs> Thank you. I wasn't sure if I told you that or not, but yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I just, I, I think it's, it's, it's important to be able to add that in um, to part of your shift. And I just don't know, I don't know the best way to do that. I don't know what the answer is, but, but somehow being able to incorporate um, like an hour or 30 minutes after your shift before you go home to be able to, to implement that, that fitness. And I would even argue that roll call yoga, you know, to get our mind in the right place is just as important, right? Mm -hmm. To have that mindfulness, I would, I would even argue that a, a, a small window prior to their shift starting and a small window at the end to allow them to shake off their shift. And, and, you know, as they're, as they're taking their vest off, they can also take off the stress and not bring that home. Um, so they're not living with it. So, um, funniest thing I ever saw my best friend here in, is a, a yoga instructor too. And, uh, uh, she, one of, when I was working with Spokane PD, uh, out of their training facility, they, uh, they host, uh, a police academy once or twice a year They're as part of the, the statewide police academy. And, and the DT instructors asked if, uh, my friend would come in and do yoga with the recruits and, and the recruits were great, you know, um, especially in the academy setting, they'll, they'll do whatever they're told, right. Cause they've sure. a vested interest in the funniest thing was seeing the DT instructors, joining in and these muscle bound men and women who haven't done any functional stretching, you know, unless there's a 200 pound in their hand. <laughs> it was funny to see. And, and, and they, they said that that was the hardest thing they'd done in, in some time, you know, even, even though they could bench a small car, um, just doing the yoga was, was quite beneficial for them. Yeah, we, we hear that a lot when we teach it, um, not to get too far off on this tangent of yoga, but when we teach it at, you know, at, the, at where I work right now, um, mm -hmm. you're right, the recruits, they don't have a choice. Um, as a matter of fact, it's built into the academy curriculum mm -hmm. in our academy. 
Um, but when you get some of these, these other people who've been on for a while doing it, mm-hmm. I think people have a preconceived notion that, that yoga is just stretching and relaxation. And in fact, depending on the type of yoga you do, it can be a very different experience. So mm-hmm. I think people are often surprised. And it's very good for sleep. I mean, a lot of officers who have sleep-related issues, yes, there's a there's a very high prevalence, twice the rate, the prevalence of uh, obstructive sleep apnea in police officers than there is in the general working public in America. But a lot of police sleep issues are centered around insomnia. Uh, and quite often it's, you know, due to not being able to switch off, right? And, and it's your sympathetic response, your fight or flight response is still activated when you're trying to rest and digest and uh yoga mindfulness box breathing whatever you know you can do to re-engage your parasympathetic will also help with your sleep so it's kind of why i would also recommend it not just you know at the beginning of shifts but but as a an, a, an off switch for the end of the shift so you can allow your body to get into a state that is more conducive to good quality sleep yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you could come and teach a class because that's exactly exactly what I tell people. It's not only beneficial to to decompress after you know a, a certain mm-hmm. call, but if you can't mm-hmm. sleep at night, mm-hmm. um, trying to trying to do some of these things. So, are there any other recommendations that you have um, for those who may be having trouble falling asleep? And I'm guessing this is part mm-hmm. of the training that that you and your wife have put together. It, it, it is, and and there's uh, you know we would describe the the suite of measures um, that fall into two buckets. One is fatigue countermeasures, kind of the caffeine and and the stuff that you try and do to stave off the negative effects of sleep deprivation. Uh, But but the only real answer is sleep. And to get good sleep, you need to focus on what we would call sleep hygiene. So there's a number of things that you can do to make your environment as conducive as possible to good sleep. One is invest in light-proof blinds. If you are in a career in law enforcement or corrections, there is going to be shift work in your future um, or your past, but do invest in good quality light blocking, light proof blinds and make your bedroom dark, uh, as dark as possible. Um, We would also advocate that you put in some very dim night lights that lead a path to your restroom and lead a path to your kitchen or wherever you get water from. So if you do wake in the night, you don't have to turn on a light that will then wake you up. So um, make sure you got enough light to aim, guys. So, but uh, but not <laughs> light enough that it's going to wake you up. Um, so dark, uh, quiet. If I, I'm lucky enough that I live in a neighborhood where nothing ever happens, um, sometimes hear some compression breaks of the trucks going down the hill behind, but. But a really quiet, you know, we are the penultimate house in the city. You know, two doors down is the county. So we're right on the edge of the city. So, but if you live in an environment where you do have a lot of external noise, a lot of traffic, a lot of hustle and bustle of a city, and you can't get it quiet, then try and mask the noise. Because the body, the, the brain, while sleeping, can deal with constant, you know, white noise or fan noise. It's that... Um, siren, that garbage truck banging, the the bins around, uh, those kind of dogs barking that can interrupt our sleep and pull us out. Um, So if you can't get your environment quiet, then try and mask any potential noises. Um, I personally sleep a lot better with moving air over me. So I 
sleep with a fan pointing at my face. Um, and my wife and I fight because she hates it and I love it. And if it was up to me, I would have it on maximum and be blown out of the side of the bed. So it's on medium. So I still have a marriage. Um, <laughs> and uh, cold. Turn, turn that thermostat down around 65 degrees, if possible. If you live in a part of the country that allows you to be that cool at night. Um, but being cool at night is not just about keeping asleep. It's also about signaling your body to get to sleep. You know, it's, we live in such a pampered society now with air conditioning and double glazing and, um, you know, but we're biologically designed that, uh, it getting dark and cold cues our body to release melatonin, which is the onset for sleep. So having sort of living in these environments where it's the same light, the same temperature 24 seven, uh, our body is missing some of those external environmental cues. So we need to put them back in. So at nighttime, about an hour or two before bed, turn that thermostat down. So it starts to get cooler in your house and that will help with melatonin expression in the body. And then keep it around 65 degrees or lower if you can um, while you're asleep. If you get cold, put a blanket on as opposed to turning up the thermostat. But uh, so cool, dark, quiet. They're the, kind of the three main ones. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you're still having issues, look at some breathing exercises, some box breathing, some uh, belly breaths, um, you know, the stuff that Wendy can teach you in one of her yoga classes, no doubt. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a really good book out there. It's really short, easy read, and you can even skip the first half of it. It's called Say Goodnight to Insomnia. It's written by a Harvard MD. I, I have no financial stake in this book. I don't, never even met the author. The first half of the book is a little preachy on why pharmaceutical intervention doesn't work um, effectively. Um, you know, most people who take Ambien or, or those types of things, uh, it will usually end up acting as a placebo. They'll fall asleep um, before the active ingredient can even, you know, have a chance to work. But the second half of the book really uh, gives you really practical advice on, on how to switch off the brain and, and how to recenter and, and so on. So it's, it's a really nice uh, resource for, for people. Great. Thank you for that. I, I will make sure to include the link to that book in the show notes and also the book that you referred to in the very beginning um, that I believe Brian Vila is the author. The, the... Oh, Tired Cops? Yes, yes. Yeah, Although it's a I tough believe one to it's... get hold of. Yeah, I was just yeah, going to say and, that. And it used to be printed by, I think it was PERF, the Police Executive Research Forum. I think they mm -hmm. used to print and, and distribute it. Um, I'll follow up with you about how to get it Um yeah, I, and the data was collected, um, well, I guess a couple of decades now, but the core function of policing is still very much the same, and we are certainly still the same biological creature. So although it's a little old, uh, it's still very valid um, today. Uh, it still has a lot to teach us. Yeah, great. And and one thing that I, I mentioned before, but I really want to make sure that we touch on this is just the implications of shift work and not getting enough sleep on our metabolism, immune system, mm -hmm. long-term mm -hmm. disease. Um, so a paper that I'm willing to share to anyone, and it, it, it acts in, in two ways. One, you can read it and maybe understand how circadian rhythm 
or circadian dysynchrony uh, affects our health. And two, it'll put you to sleep. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so we are at the core diurnal animals. Like we are designed to be awake during the day and sleep at night. And anything we do counter to that comes at a cost, either performance, safety, or health. So this paper uh, breaks out into four main areas, four main risk areas that anyone working shift, but especially people in the protective service and law enforcement um, suffer from. They are cardiovascular risks, uh, metabolic risks, uh, increased cancer risks, and behavioral or mental health issues. And in the paper, we try and step through in each of these four areas, what's going on at that core biological level when we're working at night, sleeping during the day, and in what we would call a, a circadian um, desynchrony, right? Our body is designed to sleep at night. If we, if we sleep during the day, there are internal processes that are um, guided by our body clocks, our circadian master clocks, that... They don't care that you're a night shift worker. You're you're a diurnal animal, and uh, so if we if we take for example our hunger and appetite hormones, right, or, or leptin and ghrelin being the two predominant hormones that control how we eat. Um, ghrelin is the hunger hormone, um, and I remember it by the the gr in ghrelin being like my stomach growling. Um, that is produced and it, it's produced in the body as we're awake. So the longer we're awake, the more it's produced. Uh, so basically it's the body's way of saying, you're using this machine, you gotta put fuel in it. So uh, the problem is, is that the, the hormone that says, hey, you've had enough to eat, you're satisfied, your society hormone, leptin, is slave to our, our master clock, right? Our circadian rhythms and it's, most effectively produced during daylight hours. Our hunger hormone doesn't care about that. So it's when you're awake, you're hungry, feed me, feed me, feed me. But the hormone that, that says you've had enough isn't being produced effectively if you are working and eating at nighttime. Mm. So this is one of those imbalances that we see at that core biological level. That then translates into much greater rates of metabolic disorder obesity and type two diabetes in shift workers. When we combine that with, unless you are well prepared and you're packing healthy snacks for your shift, your mid shift snack or, or, or you know, pre-shift, you know, what's available to eat out there at 2 a.m. or whenever you get hungry, you know, it's, it's, it's not Whole Foods, they ain't open at 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. You know, it's McDonald's drive-through, it's, it's, it's whatever. Um, so you have this hunger hormone that's that rampaging through your body and there's no way to keep it quiet. You're, you've got the availability of really bad food, right? That is high in sodium, high in fat, high in um, carbohydrates, um, not the good fats either. So that's not helpful. Um, so we see a significant amount of weight gain and metabolic disorder in shift workers and especially and and you know we used to do a presentation where we had a photograph of an nypd officer uh, leaning over a barricade and he's got to be like 300 pound uh, you know and, and, and we always were very careful we, we always said 
we don't put this photograph in the presentation to demigrate the officer, right? He didn't get through NYPD's academy looking like that, right? He, he was in good shape. We use the photograph to say that if you don't take risks of shift work seriously, and if you don't be mindful of, of the effects of shift work, especially on your, your metabolic health, um, this can be the consequences if you, if you leave it go unchecked. A good friend and colleague of mine, Siobhan Banks, she's a PhD, a sleep researcher in Australia. She, I think she's at the University of South Australia. She works in the area of uh, sleep and, and, and diet and the effects of um, circadian misalignment on our health and wellness. And, and she works predominantly with bush firefighters, uh, you know, who, who are kind of working nonstop during the fire season. And there's some efficacy for, for fasting while on shift. So prior to your shift, graveyard shift now, uh, eating a, a good meal, not eating at all throughout your shift. And, uh, and um, you know, having a, a good meal before you go to bed. I, I think Siobhan's a great researcher. I would be hesitant to recommend that just yet until we can understand how the lack of of nutrition and well not hydration she doesn't advocate for you know we need to all hydrate more i know very few people who drink enough water um until we understand what what the effect it would have on cognition right because i don't the, the, a police officer working graveyard shift is already on the back foot with it when it comes to sleep and making good choices if we're also adding in a lack of nutrition and how that might affect their cognitive ability I don't think we know that yet, but I would say that if you are going to eat during a graveyard shift, make sure it's healthy, right? Make sure it's uh, low fat, um, high protein, um, high good fat, I should say, you know, avocado type um, and so on. So be mindful, just be mindful of what you eat. Um, and I was, I was glad, yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up. Cause I think you and I talked about that. You, I think you even sent me that article about, uh, intermittent fasting. Cause that's something mm -hmm. that, um, I personally practice. And I know a lot of the people that I, I work with right now are, it's kind of the buzzword, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know if people truly understand the benefits of, of why it works. But in addition, combining that with people who work at night, because really with intermittent fasting, it's meal spacing and it's not eating after a certain time. But like you said, uh, if you're up at night and you're not supposed to eat at night, is that, is that contradictory? So right. do you, what, what do you recommend? Um, if you were to recommend this to somebody right now, maybe eating, eating your larger meal, if you work a third shift, which let's just say is like 10 to six, what right. would you, what would you recommend? I, I would recommend eating it as late as you can to allow that to fuel you through the shift and, and really having a really sparse mid shift meal and then eating prior, you know, prior to, to, to sleep again. Okay. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I know a lot of, especially, you know, the guys that I work with and gals, um, in the state of Oregon and in, in their statewide police Academy in the D building in the defensive tactics building, like every single one of them is intermittent fasting. Like that, mm -hmm. it, it is absolutely the buzzword, especially in the in the defensive tactics club. Um, so I, I honestly don't know enough about the science of why and how it works. I'm just 
mindful of, uh, you know, nutrition can affect cognition and um, fatigue affects cognition. And I, I would just say we need more research to know how the two combine with each other. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't know much about it. The little I do know, my understanding is that um, meal spacing so that your body isn't working as hard to digest as frequently throughout the day um, mm -hmm. is, is one one idea behind it. And mm -hmm. also, if you give yourself enough time without food, mm -hmm. um, then your body is metabolizing fat tissue. And so essentially, it's consuming yeah, its own and, fat tissue. And, and from what I understand, it, that has to be more than 24 hours without okay. food before that starts happening. But again, that's not my area of research. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that would, you know, support the idea of eating little or fasting throughout your shift would be, especially if you're in a, a high tempo, high crime area and you are engaging your sympathetic more than you probably should, the body can't digest food if you are, you know, mm -hmm. and so this is another good uh, a good reason that you need to practice mindfulness and reset, you know, center that around your meal times too, right? So your body is is in this parasympathetic, allowing for the rest and digest. Um, because if you if you if you keep filling your your body up with with uh, calories and, and then you're go 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 and you're always in that parasympathetic, they're not being metabolized efficiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that that's great advice. Well, um, I really appreciate um, you spending this time with us. You have given us a lot of good information. <laughs> I have about 10 more things that I really wanted to ask you, but I, I want to respect your time. Uh -uh. Um, but really, the thing that just kind of stands out with me, and I, I haven't gotten an opportunity to meet your wife, but I really appreciate the passion and dedication that you have to first responders, military, correctional personnel, um, because this work is so important. It really is. Thank you. And for me, it's 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 been great, you know, for, for many of us who have sort of transitioned out of the military into another line of work, mm -hmm. it can be very difficult to have a sense of purpose. Um, whereas this, I feel like I'm still in, in some way uh, giving back to those who are still on the front lines. Well, and that definitely comes across. I can tell that you're passionate about it. So thank you very much. Thank you. What, um, one last thing, how can people find you if they're interested in your research or, uh, anything that you're doing, what would be the best way for them to do that? Um, if they want to contact me directly, that's absolutely fine. Um, I'm happy to give my email address or, you, you know, you can put it on in the, in the show notes, but it's, uh, Steve James at WSU.edu. And that is Washington state university, not Wichita state. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, just S-T-E-V-E-J-A-M-E-S at WSU.edu. Or you can visit my lab website, um, which is labs.wsu.edu forward slash SHOT, S-H-O-T. And that stands for Simulated Hazardous Operational Tasks. So... Great. All right. Well, thanks again. And I appreciate you spending some time with us today. No worries. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the show notes for links mentioned in my conversation with Dr. James, the sleep doctor.